Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. Okay, I think we're close enough to 11.15, and I hear we have to beat the governor. Um, so let's, uh, let's get going. Um, thank you guys for coming out, braving the cold, braving yesterday's weather. Um, we are here to talk about outdoor recreation, which I think is a very broad term, um, and part of the reason why we're here is the breadth of that term. Um, so just wanted to start by looking at the breadth. So from horseback riding to hiking, this is sort of how the government, these are some of the government signs for various ways you can outdoor recreate. And I think this topic is important because these are the primary ways in which most people, at least in the U.S., interact with the environment. And I think that for, for journalists, that provides both an opportunity to cover this well, but also, also a responsibility to do it correctly. And um, I just, as an environmental journalist, I usually think of the outdoor space as a separate um, coverage area from the environment, but I, I really think they are one and the same and can tie into uh, so much of the work we do, and um, I think there's ways we can use outdoor recreation to make our work better and engage with the public um, on, on a deeper level. So this is the story that sort of started um, me getting involved in this topic. I have admittedly not covered it a ton, but I, I started covering this story, and um, I realized that outdoor recreation isn't just outdoor recreation. It's a whole host of other issues um, from climate to diversity to uh, health and wellness. Um, and I think uh, just talking about the various aspects of this can help us work it into our coverage in a variety of different ways. So that this story sort of got me into it. And then earlier this year, um, I saw this talk by National Geographic photographer Aaron Huey, um, powerful speaker, powerful photographer, but he is working on um, sort of the forefront of some of these issues. And I think Jude will get into this a little bit more about how uh, how climate change and how the way we use the outdoors is uh, changing rapidly and how we're going to have to adapt. But Aaron um, was working on a really cool project where he was uh, creating virtual reality images of national monuments so that people could visit them virtually without having to trample on them and contribute to over-tourism and overuse problems. And it sort of sparked, in me at least, um, an, uh, just reinforce the idea that there's many ways to address this issue and many ways um, to look at it. And so uh, we have an awesome panel here this morning. Um, and just from, I guess, your right to your left, we have uh, Jude Baham, um, who is an assistant professor here at CSU, just came from class on this very topic. Um, and then we have Lindsay Burgoyne, who is the Director of Policy and Advocacy at Protect Our Winters, and she can tell you more about that. Um, and then Jessica Newton is the owner or co-owner of Black Girls Hike Global. Um, I know her colleague Tin was supposed to join us, but had a family emergency, so thank you for stepping in um, at last minute. And then Brian Calvert is the editor-in-chief of High Country News. 
Um, so I'm hoping Jude can maybe start us off and talk a little bit about how climate change is going to affect outdoor recreation. Lindsay can pick it up and talk a little bit more about winter specifically, but also how journalists can use athlete voices um, to help this story connect um, with audiences. And then I would love if Jess could talk a bit about making sure to include diverse voices um, in your coverage of uh, the outdoor recreation space. And then Brian, um, as Heider, has done a lot of coverage, um, or at least his magazine has done a lot of coverage of outdoors and outdoor recreation. I, so I thought he could pull it all together from an editor's perspective, how, how you cover such a broad, way, broad swath of um, topics. So I'll let Jude take it from here. Uh, perfect. Well, thanks. I'm going to grab this. I just cycle through? Or? Okay. Uh, well, I'll give a little bit of background. How, how far should I hold it like this? Does this work? Okay. Um, so I guess just a quick note uh, on, on sort of how economists think about these issues. Um, you know, the, the, I think the biggest thing with outdoor recreation is most of these interactions with the environment, uh, you know, that were sort of discussed – are, are happening outside of the, the conventional marketplace, right, where goods are bought and sold. Obviously, we buy mountain bikes and gear and stuff like that, but a lot of those experiences, you know, the, the public lands and, and, you know, enjoying the environment is not traded in the marketplace. And so what we do is, well, economists, environmental and resource economists, have developed a lot of techniques to, to try to measure those values. And I'm going to give you a, a little sample of how we think about some of these issues um, as data become more and more available because satellites and, and things like that, we're, we're able to do more and more. So um, I, I think this is it's a super exciting time to be an environmental and resource economist, uh, and I hope to share a little bit of why I think that that is. Um, okay, so maybe this is uh, clear, apparent, obvious to everybody, um, but the graph on the left is showing temperature anomalies uh, over the decades, so these are observed anomalies. What you can see is that the pink curve is going to the right, getting warmer and and wider. So the variance in our, our um, uh, uh, realized temperatures, and we expect we expect that to continue. Right? Those are the different climate scenarios that we often uh, work with. Those are uh, from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, and so most studies that are looking at potential impacts of climate change are, are using these studies or are using these scenarios. Okay. Probably isn't shocking to you guys, but we expect warmer temperatures in the winter, uh, less snowfall. Okay, those browner colors are, are negative, sorry, you can't really see, but that does include parts of uh, Colorado um, and largely around the West. Um, this is just sort of motivating. Um, and then one thing I work on a lot in my research is fire, uh, so I'll touch on that a little bit. Um, and we expect more fire, obviously, with the warmer, drier uh, summers. But also, um, there are expectations that, that um, while it might be warmer in the winter, we may get more precipitation events. So we actually may get more fuel growth that will fuel sort of larger fires into the future. Uh, okay, so this is... Stepping a little bit on, on uh, well, I stole from, uh, from a report from uh, this group, uh, Protect Our Winters, and Rebecca Hill, one of the co-authors of this, is, is in my department. So I'm, I'm just sort of plugging their work. Um, you can see this GDP contribution, or, or what we would call technically value-added, uh, from winter sports is large around the country. 
in Colorado, it's particularly important, right? It shouldn't be all that surprising. Um, in that study, and I, I didn't want to go too much into it, but they, they estimate the economic impacts uh, of, the, of, of uh, potential losses in snowpack. And, and uh, I wanted to highlight a, a study from my colleagues uh, at uh, University of Illinois, actually, but Brian Partham is a, is a Colorado native, uh, which I think drew him to this topic. Um, what this graph is showing is uh, Colorado and these other states uh, enjoy high revenues from, um, from winter sports activities. So what they're doing in this study is combining Airbnb data. So we get you know, great data on how people are uh, accessing these, these resources through their decisions to go and visit these places. Um, so you can see large values uh, and also um, large predicted losses under these climate scenarios. Okay. Um, what they do in this study is, is actually actually estimate the value of the snowpack, so an inch of snowpack, um, which you can see that doesn't necessarily correspond to the revenues. It corresponds to how people change their behavior when the snowpack changes. So what they're doing quite literally is parsing out the piece that is related to snow so that they can say what will happen under these climate scenarios um, if we end up losing more snow. Um, and so these, these impacts are large, obviously. B is for billions. Um, so the takeaway there just being uh, that it's going to, in fact, uh, uh, winter recreation. Um, so switching to, to some of my work, Teek and I exchanged emails last night. And I, I had, had this sort of emphasis on, on snow because that was in the title of, of the, the talk. But he said, you can go a little more broad than that. So um, one thing I've worked on is the, is how people respond to disease risk. So this is from a, a paper we published uh, last year um, looking at how the risk of Lyme disease from outdoor recreation changes people's uh, propensity to engage in these activities. Uh, and the connection to climate is we expect uh, changing climates to um, uh, increase the distribution of, of these vectors, in this case ticks. Um, so our question here was, do people reduce their outdoor recreation to avoid Lyme disease? How am I doing on time? Perfect. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, so the big takeaway here is the lower right uh, slide or lower right panel is showing the total lost recreation days due to Lyme disease. So we use some fancy statistics, of course. Uh, but what we're really trying to get at is looking at how people's recreation changes on the margin when, when uh, Lyme, when the first cases of Lyme are, are um, detected in there. Value that lost recreation based on what people are willing to pay to do that recreation before, that Lyme, before Lyme sort of becomes more prevalent in their area. And we estimate that to be between 2.8 and, and 5 billion a year in this region, obviously, a large chunk of the population. OK, this is another. This is actually, I should have put the preliminary um, uh, uh, tag on this one, too. This is uh, uh, very preliminary, so not uh, published yet. Uh, and I'm, this is a, pr a project I'm actively working on. Um, but I, I do work on wildfire, so how we manage fire, how we spend money to allocate resources across the country to manage fire. Uh, which got me thinking, 
you know, after I did that Lyme study about this interaction between smoke and, and outdoor recreation decisions. So in, this, in our literature, there's been more uh, coming out more recently about people's investments in defensive actions. So do they buy air purifiers when there are big smoke events? Do they change their behavior in some way? And what we're trying to look at is whether people um, change their, uh, well, really their propensity to do outdoor activities. So using a large national sample on how people spend time, it's called the American Time Use Survey, uh, and we're, we're essentially looking at how that behavior changes uh, on days when you're experiencing a smoke plume. And that map on the right is showing um, the, the, the data that we're actually using uh, mapped out over the country. Um, so you can see the number of days that, that we experience on average isn't a whole lot, but these are... These are actual uh, days when the smoke, the air quality is really bad in the, in the area. And we do find that people uh, roughly um, are 3% less likely to uh, uh, engage in outdoor activities. Okay, I just want to quickly plug some of the other work we're doing in the department. Uh, Jordan Suter is another faculty member. Uh, working with recreation.gov data. If you guys have um, reserved any campsites lately, you'll be in the data set. Um, we're, we're doing some really, in, well, he's doing some really interesting stuff, um, looking at not, uh, not only how things like drought or beetle kill will affect um, uh, camping decisions in, in certain areas, but also how we can make camping more, uh, more effective. If anyone's recreated or gone camping in, the, in these areas, um, especially just right around Fort Collins, you, it's really difficult to get a campsite, uh, especially on the weekends. Um, and so we're looking at ways we can, we can s sort of smooth the, the usage of those resources. Uh, Dale Manning doing work on drought and tourism, you know, impacts there some uh, on, um, on recreation. Um, Rebecca Hill, who I mentioned, was uh, co-author of that report. Me, I already mentioned. And, and John Loomis is, a, a, is a, an emeritus uh, faculty member who's had a long career doing uh, work on these topics. Okay, I was meant to, do I have any time for this? Okay, I was meant to, to touch on this. Uh, so as an academic, um, things I like, and, and I called them concerns, but um, I hope this is stuff for discussion. Um, obviously, I like drawing attention to, when, when journalists cover my work, uh, drawing attention to issues we think are interesting enough to study. Um, it does increase the likelihood of influencing policy uh, because more eyes, uh, it sort of elevates the, the uh, research. Um, and I like uh, being able to review articles uh, for just accuracy of interpretation, things like that. I, I hope this is a discussion point because I know that's, I, I don't often get to do that. <laughs> um, concerns, obviously, I, I, I want the work to be represented fairly. Um, and uh, often academics go on and on about the limitations of their work, and I'd like to uh, see some of that end up in articles. I know words are, are a, a page space is a scarce resource. Um, so I will end with, that's my contact information, websites, things like that. Can I throw it on the stand? Oh, sure.
Awesome. Good tip. Will that work for me too, maybe? We'll try it out. Cool. Um, Good morning, everyone. My name is Lindsay Burgoyne. I'm the Director of Policy and Advocacy for the national nonprofit Protect Our Winters. We are a single-issue climate advocacy group, and we're located in Boulder. So glad to be with all of you today. There's some familiar faces here. Um, So thank you guys for coming out. I think from Jude, we just heard a lot of um, the research that's happening in terms of how climate is impacting outdoor recreation. And as an advocacy nonprofit, we absolutely rely on the research that Jude um, and his colleagues here, as well as kind of around the country, do to be able to talk about this issue. But what I'm hoping to do is share with you about how Protect Our Winters uses influencer voices and a diverse constituency of voices to speak out um, for advocacy and for what do we actually do about the impacts that are happening. Um, And as um, Teek mentioned, we work with a lot of influencers and find that a lot of times that's a great hook for working with journalists um, to kind of have this this different voice um, and maybe this famous voice speaking out on this issue. So I'm going to talk a little bit about who we are and what we do, um, a little bit about the policy work that we do and give you a few examples, um, and then just give you a little bit of um, information on why I think that we as the outdoor recreation community are the right people to take on climate change and why I think we'll win. So, um, oh, sorry, (laughs) I have it. (laughs) There we go. So um, at Protect Our Winters, we work to turn passionate outdoor people into effective climate advocates. And we feel like outdoor people who are enthusiastic and who are out in the mountains every day, probably like many of you here, um, you see the impacts of climate change firsthand. It's not political. It's not partisan. um, It's really just about the changes that you see. And we feel like that will make you a really great advocate because you have a story to tell. Um, So what we try to do, we talk about this a lot, but like make climate change action cool. That's actually a really hard job. (laughs) Sometimes it gets really wonky. Um, And so we feel like the outdoor industry really needs a voice, a communal voice to speak on climate advocacy. And some of you might say right now, hey, stop Um, the the outdoor industry, skiing, um, athletes. We have an incredible carbon footprint and we do. And we're not denying that. But we feel like having a carbon footprint doesn't preclude you from being a climate advocate. And that if everybody in this country that had a carbon footprint didn't speak up on policy, um, we'd be in a pretty bad place. So um, we're, we're open about that, but we think that what we need is systemic policy change to make the decisions that we make in our everyday lives better. So if we knew that the energy that we were using to power our homes or to power our ski lifts was coming from clean energy, that is a systemic policy decision that we can advocate for um, to change, like here in Colorado with Excel. Um, Teague, I have a tendency to talk for a long time, so just cut me off when you need to. <laughs> um, so kind of our, our theory of change is that the technology and financial instruments to solve climate change largely exists. Um, those are There's policies out there that we know we could implement today, but what we're lacking is the political will to do so. And so we, um, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm here as, as Protect Our Winters, not our sister organization, the Action Fund. Um, but we think that to get to that political will and to elect climate champions, we actually need a cultural shift. And so that's what we're trying to do is rally outdoor recreation enthusiasts around climate change. Um, I will note there's a typo on this slide. It should say net zero by 2050, which is what the Paris Accords say. So, yeah, just noting for some of you that see that, um, that is a typo and we will fix it. <laughs> 
Um, so I just said this. We, re we really feel like organizing the outdoor industry, the outdoor community um, uh, will enable us to win at the margins. And we feel like there's incredible environmental organizations that have done such great work on climate. But the reality is we're not winning on climate. Um, and we really just need to add some outdoor enthusiasts to that existing environmental base to win because there are races, um, electoral races that are being won or lost by 500 votes. There are um, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge was opened up to drilling by three votes in the Senate. There are all these things happening at the margins. Um, so how do we do that? We do that through advocate training. We do that through speaking engagements, advocacy, movement building, all with influencers from the outdoor community, as well as our grassroots. Um, so we gather athletes. We were actually founded in 2007 by professional snowboarder Jeremy Jones. Um, and that actually took him, it took him a little while as a professional snowboarder to say, okay, I'm going to start a 501c3 nonprofit and file an IRS tax status and learn what advocacy is. Um, but now we're, we're cranking, and I think we just signed our 120th professional athlete. Um, and a lot of people ask us all the time, how do you get these athletes? What do you pay them? Um, we pay them nothing, and they come to us because they see this. It's not, again, it's not political. It's not um, something crazy. It's just what they're seeing in the mountains every day. Um, and so I'm going to talk a little bit about our policy and what we do and just give a few examples. Um, so we work on clean energy. That's something we really care about. Basically, in our agenda, we try to think about what are the climate policies that give us kind of the best bang for our buck in terms of emissions reduction. Um, we know there's a lot of great work happening on adaptation. We feel like there's still work on emissions reductions to do. So one thing we do is we bring professional athletes to state houses around the country to speak out on policy change. This is um, a, a two-time gold medalist, David Wise, in his home state of Nevada, testifying um, on a renewable portfolio standard bill and uh, shaking his gold medal. Uh, he was not threatening, but I will say he did get a round of applause. And for those of you that have been in state houses, you're actually not allowed to applaud in a hearing room. So he got the gavel, and um, they were like, oh, everything you're doing is really great. Like, we even have David Wise day in Nevada, which we learned on the spot. That's how much he celebrated. But the impact of this is immensely powerful, especially in a state with a lay legislature. Um, and then uh, it turns out that the governor of Nevada was actually watching this happen on TV. And he um, worked with the powers that be and called us into his office because he wanted to meet these three professional athletes that were speaking out on clean energy that day for the continuation of their sport and their passion. Um, we also believe in setting an economy-wide price on carbon. We think this is really the biggest bang for a buck when it comes to solving climate. Um, and so this year we spent a lot of time in Oregon. Um, this was one of our uh, losses in the legislature. We unfortunately did not cross the finish line with this bill, um, but we still spent a lot of time and energy there. And, and we know that you know we're not going to win every time, um, but you got to keep showing up and you got to keep putting pressure on elected officials. And so this is a professional alpinist actually that just did a major first ascent in Pakistan, Graham Zimmerman. Um, at a local hearing in Bend where um, legislators decided we'll, we'll do these rural committee hearings because then real people of Oregon will speak out um, and they won't want climate policy implemented. And, you know, as you know, outdoor recreation is really strong in rural communities. And so we turned out our community at these hearings and showed up and said, actually, there are lots of people in these communities that want climate action for the continuation of what they love to do and the economic impact of that. Um, 
This is just one of my favorite pictures. This is one of our volunteers testifying alongside one of our professional athletes. He's wearing a hat that says Make America Deep Again. I did not ask him to testify in this. It was a little awkward, but it was kind of fun and just speaks to the fact that we try to make light of situations and um, and have fun and kind of keep moving forward and kind of build the camaraderie that we have in the outdoor industry um, to this policy work. Cool. Um, we'll skip that. That was just meeting Governor Brown. We also work on electric transportation. Um, we've spent a lot of time working on zero emissions vehicles. Um, this was a hearing in Colorado, and actually I was with Mike yesterday at an event and called him out. You can't, I don't know if you can actually see his feet, but he's testifying at something called the Air Quality Control Commission down in Denver in flip-flops. He works for Arapahoe Basin and was speaking about how he would like his consumers and his operations to have the option to buy electric vehicles. And again, I think that kind of comes back to like, we don't have to show up in suits to do this. We can be who we are and have an impact. Um, this did pass. Colorado adopted this. Dakota Jones, one of our athletes, actually spoke um, at that hearing as well because he decided that since he didn't have an option to use an electric vehicle, he would um, ride his bike from his home in Durango to the Pikes Peak Marathon, which he then won, um, and then rode it home. And he said, it would have been really great if I didn't have to do that and I could just buy a Subaru Crosstrek that's electric, um, which was very impactful at that hearing. Um, public lands, um, I'll wrap it up here, but we also believe... Um, and elevating the significance of climate in the public lands fight. I think we all know the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is open right now to drilling. And so we've been doing some direct action in DC. We, we rode our pack rafts in from the refuge right to the Capitol. Um, we spend time speaking with lawmakers there, and we also provide our athletes as witnesses to hearing. So in the middle here is two of our athletes speaking out on the Arctic refuge. Um, and so in 30 seconds, <laughs> why we will win, um, we're a huge industry. We're an $887 billion industry. When you think about that compared to oil and gas and some of the, the people that are up against us, that power is there. There's um, millions of people, millions of Americans that participate in outdoor recreation every year. We know that um, even though sometimes it seems like climate deniers are very loud, there's actually only 9% of Americans that feel that way. And all we really need are to convince the concerned and maybe even some of the cautious that they should speak out on climate policy. Um, Americans know that this is happening. And then lastly, we have the people. We have people that realize the improbable. I think if all of you think back to a big outdoor experience that you wanted to have, like how many of you reached the summit the first time? You are people that will go back time and time again and do these dogged things um, and realize the improbable. So we think that we can win on climate. And that's, yeah. <laughs> that's that. Yeah. Uh, Pass. Okay. Do you want to use that? Yeah. You don't need to. Think you're good. Yeah, yeah. I have slides. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, just Can you just pull up our website? I, have I think right I here. saw it. Yeah. Do you want me to hand it to him? I think he's good. Oh, you don't yeah. have one. Free wheeling. Very <laughs> nice. Uh, oh. Hi, everyone. I am Jessica Newton, our co owner of Black Girls High Global. Um, we actually are getting ready to rebrand. Our company is going to be called Vibe Tribe Adventures. Um, but we're still going to be a sacred space for women of color to congregate outdoors. Um, and so what we do actually is pretty much, oh, well, here, how about this? Um, so I am filling in for my uh, business owner, business partner, Tanil Louie. Um, she had a family emergency, so this is like last minute. Let me hop out here and do this. Um, 
so actually, Black Girls Hike Global is in seven states, um, and we have over 35 requests in the United States. We just launched Guam, and we're looking at Canada here in a second, um, and South Africa, Germany, United Kingdom. Uh, it's amazing. We just started in April. Um, and so what we do is encourage women of color to get outdoors for fitness, health and wellness, uh, to learn more about how to preserve wildlife um, and also how to protect our land. Um, I am an advisory councilwoman for the Office of Sustainability for the city of Denver. And so taking those policies and understanding what I'm learning and downstreaming it into my company, um, because we are a global company, uh, these women need to know what to do when they're outdoors, you know, how to protect you see a bear, what do you do? How do you, you know, not kill the bear, but then how do you protect yourself? Um, and so in our community, it's a little different. Being outdoors hasn't always been this hoorah. Um, we started Black Girls Hike Global just because there was always just one of us, right? Like, hey, girl, selfie, right? Oh, I see you. You see me. Okay, let's start something. Um, and then once we started launching this, uh, we had we saw a whole new world of people of color outdoors. Um, and so I guess my question that I'm supposed to answer is how to diversify the outdoors as far as journalists go. Yeah, I guess what, how underrepresented are people of color in the outdoors? Is it a major issue? Like, why did you start that? And how can journalists maybe yeah. um, help? I, for me, people of color have always been outdoors, but we're not... Um, we don't have the media platforms that the white community may have. Um, there was just a young man. He did a triple crown. I don't even know what that is, but it's amazing. Apparently, it's like only two people have done it their whole life, I guess, maybe. But anyways, it was never publicized. Like, And that is phenomenal to have other young men see a man do such an amazing thing. Why was that not publicized? Why, why didn't I know about it? And I have an outdoor venture company. Um, and so I think that's one of the reasons why we haven't been represented is because we don't have those platforms to say, hey, we are outdoors. Um, and so it, for, literally, you could get on Instagram and type in black people hike, hike black people, black people outdoors. And like a tons of these are hashtags and tons of pictures from around the world will pop up. But nobody writes articles about us. Nobody does TV segments about us. Nobody, you know, puts us on their gear or say, hey, let's business partner. Let's come together. Um, and so I actually just found out that corporates, uh, corporations have a responsibility to make sure they're inclusive um, in their clause of marketing. But they don't have companies to represent. They don't know that we exist. Um, and so we're learning how to build the bridge and connect us together. Um, there was a lady named Teresa Baker. She started a company called Diverse, Diverse Outdoors. And uh, she was literally bridging all of the outdoor people of color companies across the United States. And I guess another company named Cam Outdoors or Cam Doors, Cam Outdoors, they took her idea and literally launched it, but they aren't a company for black people or people of color. They are a white organization, and now they want to use this amazing uh, platform that was created by a black woman. Um, and so that's really sad to see that snatched. Like, that 
should have been publicized as well to say, hey, we have voices we're trying to get outdoors. How come this issue wasn't written about? Um, so get on uh, Instagram, guys. Like, get on Instagram. Uh, you know, I have 27 chapter leaders. Anybody can write an article about these ladies because these ladies are volunteering for me to get other women of color outdoors in their communities. We have Jennifer Trotter in Washington State. She's been outdoors her entire life. I mean, you know, hunting, hiking, you name it, she's done it. Um, Angel Ozark, our chapter leader in Arizona, uh, she's 60 years old, still leading the way. Um, we have a PhD professor. She uh, heads our Kennesaw, Georgia chapter. Um, she just did camping, paddle boarding, and kayaking all in one weekend. Like, that's so cool. Um, and so for me, I believed I had a little bit of privilege. My parents, my father uh, graduated from Harvard University with a PhD, and I guess he saw that his daughter needed a taste of a different world, so he placed me in a Montessori school. Um, and we literally would have classroom on the rocks and on the creeks, you know, outside. And we had every layer of clothes, snow boots, rain boots, you know, lofts, like things to explore the mind and help create an outdoor experience while learning. Um, and so that was inst instilled in me. I, and it, I, to me, I didn't even know this was a topic, like diversify the outdoors, like what is that? Um, and so it's kind of cool to see people who are interested in using your platform to say, this is something that I do want to talk about. Um, another thing is that we recently uh, wrote a, honored uh, Senator Angela Williams. She's running for U.S. Senate. Um, she co-sponsored a climate change bill, um, and we honored her because that's a black woman in politics, and she did that thing. Um, and so being able to say, hey, I have a community that I need to protect too, and, and just lifting her up on the platform and saying thank you for what you're doing. Um, nobody wrote articles about that. No news station showed up for that. I mean, these are, these are things that are real. Like Our community really are doing things to protect our land, to protect our wildlife, to get outdoors, and no one is there to say, hey, I heard about what you did. Let's talk about it. Um, and so it's kind of cool to be here and talk to a bunch of journalists because I'm looking for a bunch of y'all <laughs> uh, to just kind of write and, and tell the stories of all these amazing people who are already out there doing this. Well, and I thought just a plug for Teresa. Um, when I spoke to her, one of the interesting things that she talked about, um, and maybe you uh, know a bit about as well, is the historical context uh, with, around which um, people of color being outdoors exists. Um, the the sort of legacy of outdoors and and how getting over that barrier in and of itself like may, not providing just a stat for why you know only three percent of national park visitors are uh, you know people of color but like the the historical context of why that exists why the outdoors wasn't always a safe place for African Americans why uh, driving to a national park uh, wasn't always a safe journey for African Americans and I think that was just Per, journalists can provide sort of context along with sort of the numbers as well. Um, I don't know if it's something you've run across in working. So time. yeah, um, we were uh, hiking and we came down from our hike and we were greeted with the sheriff, uh, the board of directors, and the police. Um, and it was, oh, park rangers as well. It was really shocking to say, why are you out here with us? Like. What's wrong with me being on the trails? Um, and it's kind of emotional. 
we had 50 women outdoors um, on a health hike um, to just kind of get our community active. We um, African-American women have the highest rate of cardiovascular disease across the nation, according to the Center for Disease Control. Um, also in the African-American community, we have the highest rate of mostly all diseases. Um, and it's been proven that being outdoors helps mitigate a lot of health the disparities that we do have in our community. So it's a passion of mine to get us outdoors, and apparently it was an issue that there was too many of us. Um, and to me, that's kind of sad. But those are issues that we really do deal with. There are people who just don't want us outdoors or on their trails. Um, you know, you get looks, but I don't really like to focus on that because being outdoors causes for you to be positive. Being outdoors should cause for you to break down your barriers. Um, yeah, it was tough. I mean, you have right here in Golden, there is a guy who stands on a trail and he doesn't want anyone of color on his trail. Uh, that's here in Colorado in 2019. Like, it's crazy. My parents and my parents and my, like, everyone has dealt with this. It's like, this has got to end. And I think using the platform that you guys have to say, hey, these are amazing people. They're regular just like us. They're, we should celebrate our differences but come together in nature. I mean, it's, it's basic. <laughs> Thanks, Jess. Okay. I really appreciate it. Um, and Brian, I'm going to put up this slide. Tell me if you don't want it. But this is just something from, uh, I took it from one of your issues, I think, last year, uh, your outdoor and recreation issue. Just like the variety, of, like not all of them are outdoor, but like some of them oh, are just. Yeah. You can put up your Stoke won't save us. I think that might have been in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. I can, I can find it. In a cool. <laughs> so um, my name is Brian Calvert. I'm the editor-in-chief of High Country News. High Country News is a magazine that covers the West. Um, and for most of its um, most of its history, it's covered the West from a certain sort of um, rural, intermountain West states uh, issues. It's focused a lot on public lands as a result of that, on the use of public lands. Um, but what we are doing now is sort of expanding what we do to sort of t use the use the West as a place to talk about some of the uh, major issues that are in the national conversation. And so uh, climate change is one of those, I think, and also um, just um, uh, race relations, social justice, these kinds of things that are coming to the fore in a, in, a, in, a, in a big way in a national conversation are the things that we're interested in talking about in a Western context. Um, so when we think about outdoor recreation at High Country News, um, I, I think about it in two different ways. Number one, I think of it as an economic story that's pretty important. Um, and the other thing I think about is it as a, a sort of a culture and an ideology that needs some uh, adjustment. So um, when we kind of do outdoor recreation types of stories, it's not the kind of story that you're going to find in a, a glossy magazine. You know, you're not going to get your abs ripped by reading High Country News or um, find the best fitting spandex for your 10 speeds. Um, <clears throat> but we try to be a little bit more critical of the um, of, of the industry or of the idea even. And so um, one of the pieces I'm really proud of that we did was Your Stoke Won't Save Us, um, which was the idea that there actually isn't, when you do studies, um, it's sort of counterintuitive, but there's not actually a relationship between people who get outdoors and um, conservation itself. Th those are sort of um, kind of assumed, and there are, there's definitely people who are interested in conservation of the outdoors or environmentalism and also outdoor recreation, 
but what you see even clear back into the 1970s is is an, is there's not necessarily a correlation, um, a strong correlation between people who uh, like to get outdoors and their participation in meteor kind of conservation efforts. Um, I can see some people in this room that are t definitely not in that sort of section, but but that's that's something to kind of think about. Um, and, and ways that journalists can, uh, you know, I think we as journalists need to be critical thinkers of all kinds of things, rethink all kinds of um, assumptions. And I think outdoor recreation, there's a lot of built in assumptions um, that aren't actually there. So they're, uh, you know, critically covering outdoor recreation as an as an industry and an idea is important. Um, I'm a. Uh, loving father of two obnoxious dogs, so I don't actually get to the national parks very often. <laughs> um, uh, but just to give you kind of some statistics and some tools that you guys can use for reporting on this stuff, um, Headwaters Economics is a really good um, uh, tool for journalists. Uh, they use publicly available federal data and they consolidate it into stuff, mostly for the rural West or for the actually just the Western United States. But um, so, just looking at some of their statistics here, the uh, number of uh, 2018 park visits uh, total for all national parks was 316 million people, uh, spending of about, um, geez, there's a lot, $20 billion. Um, and jobs created, 266,000 jobs, and income from 2018 visitor spending was about $9 billion. So that's a huge economic story, and there's, there's a lot of stuff to cover in there sort of uh, locally and what that means. Um, but that just means it's a very powerful, you know, the, the wilderness idea or national parks or public lands is a very powerful idea that gets married into, I think, some of the uh, marketing of the outdoor recreation industry even though the outdoor recreation industry doesn't necessarily often put its resources into the conservation of those things. Um, and, um, <clears throat> you know, there's sort of the idea of, of, of rural recreation counties is something to think about. So you can look into the data on uh, what, what kind of sort of job, um, jobs that does. Um, people are more likely to move to recreation counties than non-recreation counties, uh, particularly in rural areas. So there's some uh, movement stories in there. Um, households moving into recreation counties have on average higher income than households moving into non-recreation counties. So there's sort of higher income there as well. So, so and this is a very nonpartisan, so this is not a, an advocacy kind of organization, but just saying like, here's the, where the economic trends are. Uh, recreation counties have on average lower earning earnings per job than non-recreation counties, but earnings per job in rural recreation counties are growing much faster than in non-recreation counties. So I don't know who was at the thing this morning, but there's a total gaslighting by the BLM on this. It's not, the, the, the economic well-being of rural areas in the West is not reliant on oil and gas. It just is not. Um, and there's data to prove it. But um, so, <clears throat> but recreation appears to drive varied economic benefits, including short-term support for tourism-related businesses, longer-term support by recruiting new residents who may be business owners, or entrepreneurs, or workers. So it, it's a major economic story. Um, and it's also based on a very problematic idea. And this is what I would kind of want to walk people through because I think this is where the most interesting stuff can happen. I think that in the era of climate change, in a place like the American West, which we cover, uh, wherever you are, whatever you cover, the idea of climate change as a, a sort of environmental story is problematic. 
Um, and, and the idea of sort of like out, outdoor, uh, outdoor recreation, I think there should be allies and advocates for this kind of stuff all over the place. But um, there needs to be an environmentalism for couch potatoes. And how do we build that? How do we, how do we think about that? So if you're kind of thinking, as, if you're a more thinky journalist, you're not like into the, um, uh, data nerdery, um, I want to raise a very important point here, which is that in the United States, Outdoor recreation as an industry was built out of, for the most part, a um, wilderness movement. And the wilderness movement kind of came out of, um, if you go back far enough, it sort of came out of the romantics and the sublime, kind of made its way over to the United States, moved through transcendentalism and, and, and Thoreau. Uh, a lot of this comes from uh, Roderick Nash's uh, Wilderness and the American Mind. The idea of wilderness moved from, oh, the wilderness is a place that we should, we should fear and conquer for God, to, oh, this is something that we have to preserve. This is sort of at the tail end of Manifest Destiny. <laughs> uh, the white settler colonial culture basically swept through, um, kicked people off of their land over and over and over, uh, and then sort of realized, oh, hey, we're like chewing this stuff up, we're, we're destroying it. Um, but the idea of wilderness itself and this sort of experience of wilderness, the sublime experience that I think underpins much of outdoor rec was actually built on a, a fictional premise, which is that there is a pristine nature out there that if you go there, you'll have this personal experience. And the way that they built that idea um, was by kicking people out of the land that they were on so they could create this empty space that sort of matched a romantic canvas. So Yellowstone National Park was built out of the expulsion of four uh, tribal societies, the Bannock, the Shoshone, the uh, Crow, and the Blackfeet, um, at gunpoint, harassed over and over and again by the army, people shot in the back, run out of, so that we could preserve this idea of wilderness so that people would get on trains and go west. So that the sort of idea of wilderness itself was built on a sort of uh, economic industry, which is like, how do we get more people on railroads <clears throat> to get in here so that we can continue to sort of dispossess um, the land? So that to me is a really important idea to keep in mind um, when you're covering outdoor rec, that in some ways the dominant culture values the experience of the sublime over deeper issues of justice. And that's a big deal because if you can kind of get over that, then I think we can get to a new kind of thinking about these things. But if you're spending all of your time um, trying to figure out what's so cool about Ed Abbey, <laughs> um, you're in trouble. Um, so I'll just read a couple of different sort of, just to sort of frame this. This is from, this is from my <laughs> report to my board of directors on why I think High Country News needs to really sort of be careful about just attaching itself to the environmental movement. A lot of our readers, um, loyal readers of High Country News came out of the uh, environmental movement. Uh, the magazine itself came out of the environmental movement in the 1970s. Um, but if you, I'll just read a few. I'll just read one. So this is Edward Abbey, right? Desert solitaire, the, the wilderness uh, needs no defense, only more defenders. This is that idea, right? Um, 
he said in his speech uh, back in the 1980s, it might be wise for us American citizens to consider calling a halt to the mass influx of even more millions of hungry, ignorant, unskilled, and culturally, morally, genetically impoverished people. Um, Earth First Journal, some, one of the sort of very sort of like hardcore deep ecologists, which is um, sort of the continuation of some of the wilderness idea. Um, back in the 1980s, Earth First Journal, quote, if radical environmental, env environmentalists were to invent a disease to bring the human population back to ecological sanity, it would probably be something like AIDS. So when you're sort of attaching yourself to this kind of movement, you have to sort of understand some of the pitfalls and why it is exclusive in a lot of ways. It is exclusive by nature. It was exclusive by design and philosophy. Uh, and that's very, very problematic. Um, <clears throat> versus a, a sort of a bigger idea um, of inclusion, um, which I'll sort of, you know, um, Lorette Savoy is a great writer. Um, this is from an essay called Still an American Dilemma. Um, she wrote a great book called Trace. Um, how many members of the conservation and environmental movements of the last, last half century chose to focus within a narrow frame, thinking there was no need to recognize any, any intersections with any movements like civil rights, people directly experiencing the impact of contaminated environments or climate change as loss of home, of food source, health, of livelihood, and those who are just trying to meet basic human needs haven't had the opportunity to choose. Aldo Leopold's call to enlarge the moral boundaries of the community with interdependent parts and of the social conscience to the land writ large can't be answered if the community's human members deny or avoid their own interconnectedness beyond hierarchies of dominance. And so the idea of covering so the idea of covering outdoor outdoor recreation from a, a sort of rah-rah point of view, e even accidentally, I think is very problematic. I also think if we were going to find solutions to some of the biggest problems facing uh, humanity, then we have to sort of reframe a lot of those things around and, and ask really, really deep questions about where they came from. The end. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> sure. uh, we're going to open it up to questions. Um, <clears throat> repeat them into the mic. Uh, SEJ members and working journalists uh, get priority. Mm. So, uh, I, just, I just have to repeat this for the audio, but um, <laughs> <laughs> just, just to... Just to yeah. You're mixing two things. Okay. Uh, so you were just um, <clears throat> sort of commenting on Brian's point about the removal of um, Native peoples for Yellowstone and how that might not have really been quite the timeline that you've observed in your it research. To create conservation areas. It right. Was to make it better so we could exploit everything. Yeah. Better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I would just respond by, by, you know, folks can read the Dispossessing the Wilderness, Indian Removal, and the Making of the National Parks, and if and that'll get, that'll straighten it up because there's a little bit of dissonance. I agree. Yeah. So yeah. I'm just gonna give you this. And can oh, you repeat yeah. the question? Sure. So the question was about um, whether people are looking into other vector-borne diseases um, and how that's changing. Um, activities and 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 whether economists are looking into that or anybody. Um, so what I'll I, I'm not familiar with any studies on that particular subject, but I'll, I will say that there are plenty of people f looking at the impacts of disease risk. And one thing we actually wanted to extend this to uh, look at Zika and the Zika outbreak and and look at how people um, invested in in you know either 
be bug spray or, or you know other sort of defensive investments that that would uh, mitigate risk. Um, so I it, it is definitely an active area in in research. That particular example, I'm not sure of. Sure. So the question was about where did the $887 billion number come from and, and a little bit more in detail about that in terms of the size of the outdoor rec economy. Um, in full disclosure, I used to work for the Outdoor Industry Association who reports that number. Um, and so basically that is, it is direct spending. It's trip-related expenditures and gear-related expenditures extrapolated out by how much um, people are doing outdoor recreation activities over time and in states. And it does include, it is a very broad definition of outdoor recreation. So that is motorized and non-motorized. And it does include, um, like, there's a, um, actually, since I left, there's a new determination for, like, walking and actually getting outside um, and walking. So it is, it's very inclusive. Um, I think there are different numbers that are out there. And one great example is, um, I can't remember exactly which Congress. In the last few years, one of the only um, bipartisan passed bills in both the Senate and the House was to actually count outdoor recreation as part of, part of the U.S. GDP. And then um, the Bureau of Economic Analysis did a study, um, which comes out, I think, to like 734 indirect. And we were talking about like 400 direct. Um, and so there is some um, kind of work to bring those numbers together now and look at kind of how that looks to make sure that those are the right data. But I think when you're talking about core and outdoor recreation, maybe versus a broader definition, um, yeah, that data exists and happy to talk further about it. So the, the question was, um, how do we break down this divide between different types of jobs that seem to sort of, I guess you're saying they sort of, they, like, are you kind of like talking about oil and gas? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so, yeah, the, so how do we sort of um, reconcile these differences between oil and gas jobs and recreation jobs and how there seems to be a kind of in opposition, right? Um, I think the, the answer to that is the reason that they're in opposition is, is, is how is land used and how do we use public land? And so that, that sort of, it kind of does come break along some pretty hard lines, whether or not you're going to lease X parcel of land for oil and gas development because it's going to provide jobs for the people who live in that county. Uh, versus the number of jobs that might be created if you did not lease that land and you opened it up to more um, recreational development, whether that's hunting, golfing, or, you know. So it, they kind of, they break along those hard lines, and then how do you reconcile those um, so those differences um, is a question for the entire nation because those lines are sort of becoming harder and like big split there's bigger divides between people now and they get split along um, sort of cultural ideological lines so um, you have to sort of go back to the Reagan administration and the foreign uh, the um, um, FLIPMA, which is the, the, the law that sort of governs public land management, uh, and the way that that was sort of used to enrage a lot of people to, to, to bolster um, some of Reagan's um, politics and policies, um, that sort of started to create a lot of discourse. Um, I come from Pinedale, Wyoming. It was like Western Wyoming, rural, whatever, and like environmentalist is a bad word, and it's on bumper stickers on every in every bar. And, you know, I mean, so that, but I think that came out of the Sagebrush Rebellion. And so it's, I don't know how to reconcile those, but it, those are why those hard lines exist, I think, because it's a land use question. Uh, mm. So um, my company is actually the third. OK, so the question is, how do you find what resources are available to maybe find the history of pushing people of color out from the outdoors? I guess it's kind of, yeah. Um, I 
Don't know, to be honest. I will tell you that uh, Black Girls Hike Global is the third or fourth generation of black people being outdoors in Colorado. Um, there is a guy named Winston Walker who is our um, leader, our mentor. He's been mentoring us through the ups and downs. He started an organization called Beckworth Doers, which he's 60-something, so he's been hiking all this time and getting people outdoors. And before him was a guy named James uh, Beckworth. Um, and so he was a mountaineer, came here from the east and started getting people outdoors as well. So, I mean, I don't know how he was able to execute and say, okay, we're going to break away. I don't know what the laws were at that time. I just know that it is true that black kids swim. It's a fear. Like, I, my girlfriend's like, mm-mm, girl, I'm not going swimming. Mm-mm. Or you go hiking? No, because the mountain lion's going to jump out and grab me. Um, we do have these fears, and so that comes from being pushed out and saying, hey, you can only be in these um, areas. Another thing is that when black people would travel from east to west or west to east, they had a book that was specifically for us to travel on. And if you went off of that, tra- if you... Mm-hmm deviated in another small town you were either going to get lynched you were you know somebody was going to rape you I mean there was all kinds of like paranoia because of what really was happening um, and so maybe that's a good place to start is, is that road that that book I don't know what it's called it's maybe the green map I don't know but um, it's it's a real thing so yeah thank you for bringing it up because it is a topic to say how did we get pushed out outdoors and that's research that I probably need to do if I'm going to be on panels <laughs> I mean, there's a. I think um, there's. It, it's hard to find facts if you don't have the frameworks uh, as a journalist. And I, I think um, the people who give us frameworks are poets. So there's a um, there's a book called Black Nature: Four Centuries of African American Nature Poetry that actually shows how black poets interact with nature differently from those sort of more romantic sort of. Um, other kinds of poets. There's this book called Black Faces, White Spaces, Reimagining the Relationship of African Americans to the Great Outdoors. Um, And then there's another book, which is Lorette Savoy's book, who I quoted. It's called Trace, Memory, History, Race, and the American Landscape. Those kind of help you uh, build out some different kinds of frameworks or different ways of thinking about how to report on things and and the sort of different ways that people do react with the land or the, the world around them, the environment around them. Uh, and then um, if you read the Indigenous People's History of the United States, it's just a great book to sort of un- like reframe your entire sort of understanding of um, uh, Manifest Destiny and the settling of the US. Um, and then uh, Plug for Wendell Berry, sort of Unsettling America, is just a kind of different sort of counter to those kind of things. So there's, there's ways to build it out, but you gotta like kind of do a lot of reading. And I think uh, I'll plug for Teresa. She's really great resource as well. And there's a, I'm blanking on the their last name, but uh, Park Ranger in Yosemite, Sheldon. Um, yeah, and he he speaks on this really well. And I think he was in Ken Burns's, um, you know, documentary about the national park system. So, and there's a couple academics. I think one in Chicago, and there are a few people out in the Bay Area working on this. So. Uh, if you Google around, there are a few resources out there, and, and they talk pretty eloquently about it. Uh, yeah. So the the question is, how do you resolve the conflict between the outdoor recreation um, industry and, and the way that it is can be damaging on um, on the environment itself? Um, and I I just think that's a really great space for journalists to be in. You should be uncomfortable there. Um, I don't think you have to reframe anything, but you should just sort of take it from the um, s- sort of the the 
you know, reframing any problem is kind of, you know, it's a really interesting exercise, but it's like, what, what, you know, what are you trying to talk about? You know, are you trying to talk about the jobs that come into, um, I don't know, uh, Clark County? Um, or I couldn't remember the county. It was like the Bundys were there. It was a big story for us. So, uh, yeah, it's like, are you trying to think about Clark County or are you trying to think about the way that the, um, that kind of degradation is uh, creating uh, that, an- or, you know, bolstering an anti-Fed movement? Or, are you just, or do you want to talk about the impact of recreation on the land itself? And there's like probably tons of stories there that it would be behoove the outdoor recreation industry to be aware of and read so I, I think those are the kinds of things that are important stories for um, journalists to cover when it comes to outdoor rec. I'll just add, um, as a single issue nonprofit focused on climate, like we, like, yes, I just said I worked for the outdoor industry previously, but we are actually actively trying to push the industry to speak on climate. So I feel like I can't speak to that issue specifically. Uh, well, High Country News, we, oh, the, so the question was, um, uh, how can visual journalism address some of these bigger, bigger questions and issues? And that's from climate change to diversity or within the outdoor recreation industry, I guess. And I think one thing that um, we try to do really, um, uh, we try very hard to do at High Country News is to um, be representational in our photography and our imagery and also to um, hire photographers from communities of color whenever we are covering them. Um, we try to do that with our journalists as well. So the idea of reporting from and for a community, not about it, is really important across the board. Uh, and it's really important in visual journalism because of the way that things get sort of uh, just kind of rendered and simplified and mediated through visual through a visual medium. So you really have to kind of be conscientious about that and understand that you, uh, any given um, photograph or image is going to, you know, a thousand words, right? So it's like you have a thousand word responsibility with every picture that you take, and, and we have a thousand words to kind of get into the nuance. You don't have that. So you have to think, you have to like not think of it as nuance, but rather, okay, this is an image. What does this image project? Can I add something? Okay, so uh, for, for from my perspective, I think it's incredibly important uh, because academics are not great communicators, um, or sometimes we are to each other, but um, in very uh, certain ways, a lot of technical language. Um, I have grown to very much appreciate graphics. I can't make them very well, so anyone that can help me do that. Um, in fact, I just wrote a grant and budgeted for someone to do science communication in it. Um, I, it's still early stages. I think I'll, there's a lot more. So I'm glad you're doing that. Come talk to me. <laughs> um, but uh, I think for it helps in the communication to get the message out. Oh, sorry. Um, I'll just add, I feel like that's a really, really key part of our advocacy in that we need to be telling stories and, and putting them out there. Um, And so we've spent a lot of time and energy working with videographers and creatives and um, actually did our first virtual reality piece last year and really trying to think about how to show people and how to bring people to places to see the impacts that we see. Please, please video us, girl. We have been looking for videographers in so many different states. So just please follow us on any of our social media platforms and just come out and film us. Seriously. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I was going to add for the Nat Geo thing we did, we did a video that they uh, auto-played at the top before the, ev- the text even. So, like, I, like, 
also just thinking cross-platform. So not just text or not just photo. If you think about it as a cross-platform story, and I know some of this stuff is expensive, think about partners. There's lots of grants. SEJ um, has grants, maybe not specifically in this area, but it sounds like um, the pitch sessions are geared towards that. So I would just talk to colleagues in other mediums and see how you can help each other um, do it. And especially visualization is good. You never know how someone is going to connect to a story. It might be through print. It might be through visuals. And the more you can, ways you can throw that at somebody, I think, helps. Uh, any more questions? Um, Cool. Well, that's actually pretty good timing. Uh, I am told that we need to be back in the ballroom by about 1230 um, because there might be overflow uh, with the governor's speech. So thank you guys all for coming and don't hesitate to contact any of us with follow up questions.